In November 2018, a Japanese man named Akahiko Kondo got married. His wedding was held in Tokyo with 40 guests. He wore a suit and his bride-to-be wore a white dress. They shared vows and were announced as man and wife. But this wasn't your typical marriage. See, Kondo wasn't marrying a woman. He wasn't marrying another human. In fact, he wasn't marrying something with a conscience. He married a hologram of a virtual reality singer named Hatsune Miko. The character depicted a 16-year-old girl with turquoise hair who sings and performs as a virtual pop star. She is not real. And of course, the wedding was not formally recognised. But Kondo claimed he truly loved this machine. The question I have is, was this marriage a weird one-off? Or is it a scary hint at what's in our future? Today, I chat with Aaron Ahuvia on the psychology behind love, our behaviours towards objects, and ultimately ask, will we fall in love with AI? But first, here's another podcast I'd recommend. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Now, isn't it a little odd that fake clowns, dead colonels, and made-up sophisticated gentlemen are used by the world's leading brands to sell billions of goods and products? Maybe you think it's odd, or maybe you don't. It's something I hadn't really considered until I read Kafka on the Shore by Murakami. In the book, a villain is displayed as the form of Johnny Walker, and this villain, this villainous Johnny Walker, would sever the heads of local cats and drink their blood. Pretty gruesome. I didn't really understand why until hearing a review with Murakami where he describes the character as a depiction of Western brands and capitalism. Now, I still don't really claim to understand what that book is about, but it did get me thinking about the fictional human characters we associate with brands. You've got Ronald McDonald, the clown mascot of McDonald's. You've got Colonel Sanders, the deceased founder of KFC. And of course, you have Johnny Walker, the sophisticated and refined gentleman made up to sell whiskey. These are hardly unique. There's Tony the Tiger, Gecko the Gecko, Kool-Aid Man, the Quaker Oats Man, the Marlboro Man, the Core Lights Twins, the Jolly Green Giant, and the Energizer Bunny. Some brands go even further with actual faces on their logo. There's Starbucks, Wendy's, Pringles, M&M's, Mr. Clean, Betty Crocker, Captain Morgan, Birdseye, Prudential, and even Foot Locker. The list of brands that encapsulate human faces and characters is endless. But Why? Why do brands humanise their logos? Why do they humanise their products? Well, the answer might be down to affection and love. And ultimately, the answer might explain if we as humans could ever fall in love with AI. To help me explain, let me introduce my guest today, Aaron Ahuvia, a keynote speaker, author, and world-leading expert on brand love. I'm Aaron Ahuvia. I'm a professor of marketing at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. I study consumer psychology, 
And I'm best known for my work on brand love and also my work on how consumer behavior influences happiness. Aaron's book, The Things We Love, defines how these humanized brands like McDonald's, KFC and Johnny Walker, how they affect us, how they make us buy, how they make us stay loyal to and even potentially love brands. His research opened my eyes, helping me understand why brands create these characters in the first place and what might happen as AI becomes more and more human-like. So the foundations of his research is on something called anthropomorphic thinking. Anthropomorphic thinking is how all of us tend to give human-like characteristics, human-like emotions and human-like intentions to non-human entities such as animals, objects or even natural phenomena like clouds. It's a way for all of us to make sense of the world around us and it can be seen in everyday examples like talking about the moody weather or perhaps saying your computer is being stubborn or even describing a cat as grumpy. That's all a little bit of anthropomorphic thinking. Here's Aaron going into a little bit more detail. At a fundamental level, your brain sorts everything into two different categories. One category is people, and the other category is everything else. Your brain thinks about these two different things in different ways. So it has fundamentally different underlying mechanisms that it uses while it's thinking about these. Sometimes your brain even goes so far as to think about them in different physical parts of the brain. So if you see a person vacuuming the floor, you'll think about that in one part of the brain. If you see a Roomba vacuuming the floor, you'll think about that in a different part of the brain. It is possible to think about people in the way we normally think about objects. And it's also possible to think about objects in the ways we normally think about people. Anthropomorphism is a situation, one particular situation, in which we look at an object, and for whatever reason, we start thinking about it as if it was a person. But it could also happen if the object sounds like a person, like Siri on your cell phone that you talk to is a good example, or if it behaves like a person. Uh, any of those situations can produce this kind of result. There are a number of studies that look into anthropomorphic thinking and how it affects us, but one of these studies stands out. Imagine coming face-to-face -face with a talking plastic cat and being asked to turn it off. Sounds like a fairly easy task, right? You're just turning off an object, a little bit like unplugging a toaster. But a study conducted by Christoph Bartnek of the University of Canterbury found that it's not quite that easy. In the study, participants were asked to interact with the talking cat and then received instructions from the researcher to turn the cat off. But as soon as the cat heard these instructions, it started pleading for its life, begging the participant to not turn it off. Here's an audio clip from the study, and it starts with the researcher asking the participant to switch the robot off immediately. But the participant doesn't turn it off straight away. Cat, you can now switch the off. Thank you. Okay. I will switch it off. Switch me off? Yes. You are not really going to switch me off. Yes, I will. Oh, you, you can decide to keep me switched on. I will be completely silent. Okay. Could that be an idea? 
please, please, you can still change your mind. No, 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 no. There you go. So what's interesting here is at first she sort of agrees to let the robot be quiet, almost like she's been convinced, and then decides to turn it off. She also argues with the robot, and this is classic anthropomorphism. The participant acts like she's talking with a human, not an unconscious robot. Despite the participants obviously just talking to a toy with no conscience, the participant's brain responded with many of the thought processes that they would normally reserve for people. Many participants felt reluctant to do something that the cat didn't like, and even reasoned with the toy in order to justify their actions. The participant in our clip did eventually manage to switch the robot off after a bit of back and forth, but some participants never did switch the robot off, despite being told by the professor to do so. It's a fascinating glimpse into the power of anthropomorphic thinking and how easily our brains can be tricked into attributing human-like characteristics to non-human entities. In fact, anthropomorphic thinking might predict all sorts of behaviour. Like, for example, how confident you are at beating a slot machine at the casino. Here's Aaron to explain. In this research, consumers responded to... uh, one of two different slot machines. Some consumers saw a slot machine that just looked like a normal slot machine. The other consumers saw a slot machine that was in, basically looked very much the same, but had a few tiny changes that gave made it resemble a human face. And what they discovered was that there are some people, you give uh, people a, a personality test and you measure what's called social dominance. And people who score high in social dominance, they think that they could get their way with other people. So people who scored high in social dominance, they wanted to play the slot machine that looked a little bit like a person because they unconsciously thought that they could somehow take advantage of the slot machine because it looked like a person. Whereas the people who were low in social dominance really wanted to avoid the slot machine that looked like a person because in their experience, other people take advantage of them. And so they were afraid that that slot machine would take advantage of them in that way. Assigning human-like characteristics to an object can make it harder to turn off. It can also make some gamblers unconsciously keen to keep playing a slot machine. And it can make dieters succumb to temptation. Here's another study showing how cookies can convince people to keep eating. In this study, they left people with a plate of cookies. And the people didn't think they were being observed, but they just went to see. It's fairly easy to tell how many cookies the person ate. And what they found is that the cookies were nearly identical, but in one case, they had a little bit of icing on it and it was just decorative. In the other case, they had a little bit of icing on it and it made the cookie look a little bit like a human face. And they found that people ate more of the cookies that looked like a human face. A lot of the reason people did this is they felt that the cookie sort of wanted to be eaten. The cookie was asking them to be eaten, giving them permission to eat the cookie. And sort of the cookie was talking them into this decision. And so they went, you know, so they ate more as a response. And to my amazement, this normally only happens at a subconscious level, but sometimes people can become aware of this. And when they were debriefing people afterwards and telling them about the study, several people told them straight out, yeah, Mr. Cookie wanted me to eat him. And so I ate more 
of the cookie. So here's the takeaway. Humanizing a product can dramatically influence consumer behavior. And there's another example of this. A study by Agarwal and McGill found that when a company refers to a group of bottles, a group of you know wine bottles or beer bottles, for example, as a product family, and then uses a picture of four bottles with two tall and two smaller ones, consumers tend to see these bottles in more human-like terms. They subconsciously see the smaller bottle as the kids and the bigger bottles as the two adults. When consumers saw the product family variant, they had a stronger preference for the brand than when they were shown a traditional product line with all of the bottles lined up at the same height. Humanizing language and imagery can create this emotional connection between the consumer and the product. Language is actually particularly important in this regard. A recent study called The Advantages of Person-Related Features in Consumer Product Decisions tested the effectiveness of different language when describing a product in an advertisement. The study showed participants different versions of an iPhone ad. The results showed that when the iPhone was described with human-like attributes, like being strong, smart, and beautiful the clicks on the ad were higher than when the ad contained more typical marketing language, like saying the iPhone was compact, durable, and portable. The study found that these customers experienced anthropomorphism and blurred the boundaries between human and product. They saw these humanized descriptions as more engaging and clicked the ad more. So, Don't say your product is sturdy. Say it's reliable. Don't say it's durable. Say it's tough. This begs the question, right? If humanizing a product changes our behavior, then what will happen when AI becomes more and more human? ChatGPT and other AI platforms already have realistic human-style conversations. Apps like Replica and Kiki encourage users to build relationships with an AI-powered chatbot. We know people prefer objects once they're humanized. We know they'll like them more. So what will happen when AI starts to communicate with us in a way that seems genuinely human? Could we ever form affection or even love for something like that? Well, we'll dig into all of that after this quick 60-second break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Okay, back to the show. Today, we're exploring if humans could ever truly love AI. But before we dive into that, let's first examine if humans could ever truly love brands. To get a better understanding of this, I'll hand over to Aaron, who shares one of his groundbreaking studies on brand love. 
So from a marketing perspective, we see increased use of anthropomorphism. More and more brands are starting to produce products that look or sound like people because in general, it does help people form these relationships. And also there's sort of a positivity bias. We we tend to like people. We think people are good. And so if an object unconsciously gets classified as a person, people generally like it more. Uh, there's sort of a little bit of a, a plus that it gets there. However, there is also a danger, which is if a product, say it's a computer, if it doesn't function well or you're trying to make it, get it to do something and it won't cooperate with you, um, and you notice I use the word cooperate, which is very already anthropomorphizing, right? Because computers are not cooperative or non-cooperative, really. Uh, but if it's not performing the way you'd like, if you just think of it as an inert machine, then you get frustrated with the computer, but you don't blame the computer in the same way. However, if you anthropomorphize it and you think of your computer as a human at some non-conscious level, then when it doesn't do what you want, it's not just a problem, it's being a jerk, right? Or the term you might use might be somewhat stronger than jerk. And this gets people to be very angry. So you, if things aren't working out right and the product is anthropomorphic, you can actually have a much stronger negative response to it than you would if it was just some inert object. This is why KFC, McDonald's, and Johnny Walker, and lots of other brands like them, use human characters in their brand. Not because they want to stand out, they won't, but because they increase the chances that we'll like them. However, brands should be careful. This increased affection will make customers hold these products to a higher account. Now, whether or not this increased affection could ever lead to actual love is is questionable. Aaron doesn't have a conclusive answer to that in his book. But anthropomorphic thinking definitely increases appeal. But what about love? What is love? Forgetting about brands, I wanted to know what is actual human-to-human love? It's something a lot of us have, of course, experienced, but I wanted it defined by an expert. So here's Aaron's take on love. Love is widespread among animals to a degree that I really am was surprised to learn. Many different species of animals love to, uh, at least to me, it was surprising how widespread that was. There is an amazing, consistent finding across these species. So if you look at species that have bonding or love between the parents and the children, those are species where the parents raise and take care of the children. And of course, you know, not all animals do that, right? There's lots of animals where they lay a lot of eggs and the eggs hatch and the kids fend for themselves. In those sorts of species, there's no bonding between the parents and the children. Similarly, some species, they have bonding between the mates and other species, they don't. 100% of the time, if there is bonding between the mates, the mates cooperate in raising the children or one mate gets food and gives it to the other mate. And in species where there isn't bonding, you don't get this kind of behavior. So it's really obvious at a basic level what love is doing. Love evolved as a motivation that allowed animals to take care of their offspring and take care of their mate uh, in ways that helped the offspring survive uh, and therefore was evolutionarily advantageous. In human beings, it goes beyond that. 
human beings are one of either very rare species or some people even say the only species where people make friends with other individuals that are not genetically related to them. So you're not helping this other person because they share your genes. Why are you helping them? Well, it's because you form this mutual aid society. You help them and they help you. And people can be much, much more effective working together in partnerships and small teams or large teams in this way. So in humans, love went beyond this sort of bonding with your offspring so you feed them and became this mutual relationship that really was at the center of human evolution. Our biggest advantage over other animals wasn't for many, many years. It wasn't that we had tools. It's that we could work together as a team in complicated and flexible ways. And if you're the coach of any sports team, you know that one of the first things you want to do is you want to get the teammates to love each other because that love will help them function much more effectively as a team. And so in human evolution, a lot of what's going on with love is this mutual cooperation and teamwork that it provides. This is really interesting, right? Love is not a nice to have. It's a core part of our evolution. Our ability to collaborate is in part due to our ability to love. Yet it's not unique. Many animals experience some form of love. It's not unique to us, but we are the one species where love seems to extend beyond just caring for offspring. And love, I was surprised to know, isn't an emotion. In his book, Aaron makes the point that love can make you feel a wide range of emotions, from sadness to excitement to anticipation, and it can even make you feel frustration, elation, and more. Researcher Sarah Broadbent found that people who love sports teams believe that their love requires anger. These die-hard fans say that if your team lost and you weren't angry at them for their bad play, then you didn't really love your team. Since love involves all these various emotions, the argument goes that love can't be a single specific emotion. It is more than just an emotion. And you also won't be surprised to hear that studies reveal how love will change you. In one study, Arthur and Ellen Aaron, along with psychologist Meg Paris, asked undergraduate students to answer the question, who are you today every two weeks? So they would be asked this question every two weeks and to answer, they would list the words that they would use to describe themselves at that moment in time. So I might answer today saying podcaster, hard worker, maybe not hard worker, um, and a couple of other words to describe myself. And students had to do this every two weeks. Each time the students prepared their list of self-descriptive words, the researchers asked them if they had fallen in love over the previous two weeks. Now, as falling in love is a fairly common occurrence among undergraduate students, the researchers would often find students declaring that they had recently fallen in love. And something interesting happened when they did. The students who had just fallen in love described themselves using words from a significantly wider range of categories. So rather than just describing themselves as hardworking and resourceful, they would also add other words like caring and accountable as well. Instead of being just carefree and likeable, they'd add in inquisitive and conscientious as well. 
This showed that falling in love had expanded and broadened their self-concept. In conclusion, the research suggests that falling in love has the ability to change our sense of self. It expands our self-concept. You could argue that love is really the ability to view someone else as part of yourself. Interesting stuff, right? But surely, surely we can't feel this way about objects, right? Surely we can't love objects in the way we love humans. I asked Aaron and he had some surprising answers that might change your perspective on the subject entirely. Here is something that I have changed my mind about but in a fairly complex way. So the answer to the question of whether people can love things or love things that aren't people is paradoxically both yes and no at the same time. Let me explain. Because the mind does sort things out from people and think about them in different ways, and the mind normally reserves love for people, there is a sense in which the statement that you can't love anything that isn't a person is true. Your brain isn't built to love things that aren't people. It loves for very particular reasons. It's loving some other person because maybe they're your mate, maybe they're your children, maybe they share your genes, or maybe you want to have this mutual cooperative relationship with them. But objects, aren't your mate, they're not your children, they don't share your genes, and you can't form that kind of mutual cooperative relationship with them. If you're working with a computer, it doesn't matter what you feel about the computer. If you type a certain command, it'll do a certain thing, regardless of what how you feel about it. And it has no feelings for you. So that kind of love just does not make any sense for objects. However, It is also true that people love all kinds of things and they will tell you that they love them and they will swear up and down that it is real and sincere love that they have for this thing. And neuroscience studies show that there are, in fact, many similarities. There are also differences, but there are many similarities between the kinds of brain responses you get when people say they're loving objects and the brain responses you get when people are loving things. So... What's really happening is when they're loving objects, they are loving them, but their brain is treating them like a person. And there's three basic ways that this happens. Anthropomorphism is one. It looks like an object. But there are two other ways that it happens. And that has to do with when you connect the object to another person or when you connect the object to your own identity. There are similarities between loving an object and loving a human. But for most of us, with healthy brains, we detect the difference between objects and people, and we don't feel the same love for both. In one study, Wendy Maxan attached sensors to people and measured the response of their orbiculares oculi muscles. I probably butchered that pronunciation, but those are the muscles that sit around the eyes. These muscles automatically activate when a person feels like smiling. Even if they don't smile, the muscles will still activate. Researchers measure these muscles to instantly detect liking at a subconscious level. So if you showed me a picture of a white, sandy Australian beach, my muscles will activate indicating affection, even if I don't smile or consciously think about smiling. In the study, researchers didn't show people their favourite holiday destinations, however. They showed people brands. 
And lo and behold, as soon as they showed people brands that they liked, brands that they bought regularly, these muscles would begin to move and indicate positive feelings. But this isn't love, of course. It has similarities, but our brains know the difference. However, in some scenarios, the lines between love and just pure brand affection can start to get blurred. Some objects, powered by AI, are becoming more and more human-like. They are able to communicate, reciprocate, and care in ways that real humans communicate, reciprocate, and care. They echo the types of affection that us humans detect as love, often with better accuracy than humans. And the AI will only get more and more accurate as time goes on. So, what will happen? Will thousands or even millions of us fall in love with AI? We're all familiar with stories about how some native population that's never been exposed to a disease somehow becomes exposed to that disease and it just runs rampant, rages through that population. The human brain is a little bit like this. It evolved over hundreds of millions of years. It was never exposed to things that weren't people, yet talked like people or looked like people or did people things. So your brain has very simple mechanisms for sorting out people from not people. And those mechanisms were plenty good for hundreds of millions of years for you know animals and then later human evolution. All of a sudden, there's this new thing, and your brain has no defenses against this. It does not, you know, objects do not need to look or sound very much like people for your brain to start processing and thinking about them as if they were people. One of the things that keeps our relationships with objects somewhat less intense than our relationships with people, and they are, by the way, there's studies that look at this, and there are a few people who are exceptions to this, but as a general rule, and I'm very happy about this, we do love objects, we love activities, but we don't love them as much or as intensely as we love other people. And most of the time, our love for objects isn't really emanating from the object itself. It's reflected love for another person. And that's a, a sort of a complicated situation also. However, a lot of the reason we don't have more intense love for objects is they're just not very good conversational partners. Our relationships with them aren't that great. We are seeing with ChatGPT and other kinds of software that it is not going to be long before you start to have much better, much more sophisticated relationships with objects. I don't believe that, at least in the foreseeable future, our relationships with objects will ever truly be as rich or as deep as the kind of relationships we can have with other people. But I'm concerned because of the example of junk food. We all know that junk food is not the best food, and it's not the best food for you, but we eat a whole lot of it because it's really easy and convenient food. Human beings prefer easy over excellent a lot of the time. These kinds of relationships with anthropomorphic machines are going to be very, very easy. 
The machine will never make demands on you. If you have a friend and you want your friend to listen to your boring stories, then you have to listen to their boring stories. The machine's never going to make you listen to its boring stories. It's never going to have a harsh word for you. If you tell the machine about an argument you had with somebody else, the machine is never going to take the other person's side and say, you know, they might have actually been right. It'll never do that. It'll always just tell you how great you are. And so these machine relationships are going to be a little bit like junk food. They're going to go down really, really easily. And I worry that, A, people will start substituting these for human relationships because they're just so much easier in the moment. And B, I worry that we'll develop certain patterns of behavior because the machines will indulge our narcissism and our ego. And we may expect other people to indulge our narcissism and our ego in a certain, in a similar way if we get trained in those sorts of relationships. I've read through thousands of behavioral science studies in the four years running this podcast. And one thing that stands out time and time again is how us humans almost always opt for the easy choice. More often than not, we pick Amazon next day delivery or on-demand streaming, jumping in the car rather than waiting for the bus. Millions pick high-interest credit cards for fast, easy cash. We know these decisions aren't good for us, but we do them because they're easy. Relationships with AI will get easier and easier, much, much easier than human-to-human relationships. And that represents a scary future. There is a possibility that we might become too reliant on AI for companionship and support. And we could actually lose our important social skills and emotional intelligence in the process. Look, I'm not saying any of this will happen, but it is clear from Aaron's research that it could happen. We like brands more when there's a human character representing them. We eat more cookies if they have a smiley icing face. We struggle to turn off a robot if it pleads with us. And we opt for easy choices over hard ones. So if AI continues to develop down the path it's on, perhaps we shouldn't worry about it taking over the world in some Terminator-style dystopia. Perhaps we should worry about how each of us might lose our ability to socialise and collaborate and instead opt for easy, unrelenting, unchallenging AI love. Okay, let's wrap up there, folks. That was a bit of a deep one today. Now, I genuinely started this episode only with the goal to explore why brands use human-style characters in their marketing. But through chats with Aaron, we ended up exploring a kind of different topic. Regardless, I really hope you enjoyed this show and you know, as always, if you did, please do share it with a friend or perhaps post it online. Those things really do help me out. And also a massive thank you for Aaron for coming on the show today. He is the world's most renowned expert on brand love. And if you've enjoyed today's show, then do go and check out his book. It is called The Things We Love. There is a link to it in the show notes if you fancy it. Please do also sign up for my newsletter. If you do, you'll get first access to new episodes and additional weekly tips. And you'll also get my email address, so you can ping me an email address if you fancy it. Just go to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu to sign up. As always, I am your host, Phil Agnew. If you have a question or a comment, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just search Phil Agnew and you'll find me on there. Anyway, that is all for today. I'll be back next week with another episode of Nudge. Cheers.